Glad you could be with us today. also want to say hi to everybody who's coming to us today on the internet. Let's begin by praying together. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to just thank you for all the blessings that you have given us. We thank you most of all for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for you giving him to us when we were your enemies, that he went to the cross and bore our sins there, and that you raised him from the dead. We thank you, Father, that by simple faith in Christ, whosoever believes will never perish, but instead has been given eternal life. And Father, we're here today also to thank you for all the blessings in our lives now and the promises that you have given us about the future blessings and the eternal blessings. And we just uh, help us, Father, in these times, difficult times, here down here on earth, to keep our eyes focused on you and the things above. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. Well, good morning again, everyone. We'll celebrate the Lord's Supper today at the end of service. This, This month, the missionary organization that we're featuring is Chosen People Ministries. Turns out I just received the letter. From Rich Freeman. So I'm going to just read a little bit of it right now. He's sending his greetings. Shalom from Florida. To Florida in this case. Um, Their office is still shut down. They're working from home as a lot of people are. Um, They're resting in the goodness of the Lord. This claim in Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him, Messiah, who strengthens me. Recently, he's been reading the book of Numbers, and the Israelites refused to believe that God was able to provide for all their needs, despite the fact that they had seen him miraculously deliver the people from bondage in Egypt, and and supernaturally provide all their needs in the wilderness. Israel at that time was not able to believe that God is able, but my hope and prayer, Richard writes, during this difficult time, is that we would have the strength of faith to believe that God is able. Family's doing fine. Got some great news. He's going to have another grandchild. That's number seven. If anyone's keeping count, and he certainly is. Um, he does ask for our prayers, that the pregnancy would go fine, and that the baby would be healthy, and grow up to be a thriving woman of God. Yep, it's a girl, and he knows now. Um, so he asks for that we continue to pray for the ministry, and uh, he prays for us as well. And he prays for us and thanks us for our continuing support of the ministry. All right. Chosen People Ministries. Great outfit that supports the preaching of the gospel to the Jewish people. I'm going to continue to remind everybody about the homeless ministry that Bud and Kim Dungan have started here. Uh, They're they're always in need of food, uh, non-perishable cans and stuff especially. Please, Please pray for that ministry as well. Every time I turn around... Um, he's letting us know about another man or couple that's been saved. And so there's a lot going on with that. So please keep that in prayer. With COVID-19, again, we do ask based on the orders from Broward. Um, we don't take orders from Broward about what we preach, about when, but we do want to keep everybody healthy. And so um, if you can wear a mask at all times, please do so. We know that there are people who may have a medical condition that prevents them from doing that. But other than that, we would ask that you would do that. And I can see that we're all separated in the families and so forth, and that's good. And let's get started. The title of today's message is The Grace of the Lord Jesus Be With You. The Grace of the Lord Jesus Be With You. Please turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19. This is the last passage that we're going to have. It's the last passage in the letter of 1 Corinthians. And so we're going, to, we're going to finish today this letter that we've been studying and learning from and hearing from the Lord through. And in verse 19 we read, The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord. We're at the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This greeting is in my own hand. Paul, if anyone does not love the Lord, he has to be accursed. Maranatha, 
The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, we have now arrived at the end of the letter of 1 Corinthians, and it's been a wild ride. We've seen the depths of selfishness and the heights of love. And here at the end, we catch a glimpse of the Lord's desire for these saints in Corinth. And his desire was that they would be a beloved community. Community loved by God, loving each other, where all things are done in love. Verse 14, all things are done in love. It's a, it is an amazing goal. It is a challenging thing. But clearly, they, we wouldn't be commanded if it weren't possible that we would do all things in love. Paul, of course, gave us the example of what that looked like. Love is multifaceted. There's times when love means that you have to be chastising and rebuking those that you love for their benefit. He certainly did that in this letter. But at the end of this letter, he wants them to be assured of the love of God and his love for them. This beloved community, where all things are done in love, was not only God's desire for the saints in Corinth in the first century, it's also his desire for us. He wants us to be a family where there's love for one another. He wants that such that the body, we're all one, and that we all suffer when one of us suffers. That we all rejoice when one is blessed. Now, before we get carried away here, there are a few obstacles to overcome on our way. We saw them throughout the letter. The Corinthians had obstacles. At the time, there were rivalries. That certainly gets in the way of having a beloved community where all things are done in love. There was selfishness. Me first. That's the opposite of love. The opposite is of, of love because love is you first. All right. And there was arrogance. Arrogance is the enemy. Arrogance is, arrogance is in much measure the root sin and, and from which all the other ones come. Arrogance. Thinking more highly of yourself than you should. Thinking that you're better than other people. Focusing on your supposed advantages and talents and so forth. Now, here at the end of the letter, we see another threat. And we're going to study this in some detail today, and it's in verse 22. And at this time, I just want, the verse is, again, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Now, I want you to notice that here, he's no longer talking to them as you, he's talking about a he. There is a he among you. In the beloved community, There is somebody in there who doesn't share your love, who doesn't share your belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a he among you, a wolf in sheep's clothing. That hater, because he's not a member of the beloved community, has to be dealt with severely. A lot of times people ask, you know, why is there a lake of fire? Well, the answer is, is that God is about putting together the body of his son. He wants there to be a beloved community forever. Now, if you've got somebody who's, who's rejecting the Lord, rejecting his people, filled with hate, that kind of a person can't be in the beloved community. Paul saw that in the first century when he says what he does, what he does in verse 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed, Maranatha. All of that happens in these last six verses of 1 Corinthians. Now, let's, let's read again verses 19 and 20. Verses 19 and 20. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. And all the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Asia greet you. I'm going to show you a map in a moment. Remember at that time Asia was a Roman province. It's not what we think of today. It wasn't China or Japan or Southeast Asia, all right? It was a, it was a, a western third of what today we know as the, the nation of Turkey, all right? So that, that was a Roman province at that time called Asia. Paul was there. He was still in Ephesus, which was the capital city of the province of Asia. But his ministry had reached throughout the, the, that province, and therefore he had multiple churches that he had founded, and others as well that aren't named, And all of those churches now, all of them were greeting this one church in Corinth. 
What is he saying here? What is the Lord telling us here? He is telling them and us that we belong to something bigger than just the local assembly. We are part of a wider community of the saints. An extended family, if you will. In this case, they lived across the sea, the Aegean Sea, from Corinth. They were in another province, and yet they were one. They were one with the same mind, the mind of Christ. They had the same purpose, ultimately God's purpose for them anyway, all being conformed to the image of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. They had the same fellowship. You know, uh, we used to, I used to go on conferences with the church I was at before, and it was amazing how no matter where you went, even no matter where you went, Today, when we, when we uh, go into prison ministries, and, and no matter how we meet up with other believers in Christ, we know there's a oneness there, that we share the most important things. No matter where these people are, you know, the, 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 the missionaries that we support, they could be in Canada, they could be in Africa, they could be in Pakistan, and yet we're one, we're of the same mind, we are a family, and that's what he wanted to get across to the Corinthians. Even though this family lived across the sea, which in that day and age was quite a trip, okay, sailing from Corinth to Ephesus or back, going from Corinth to Rome, all right, these were, these were voyages that took days and weeks and were dangerous, and yet those people were one with them. They had one Lord. They shared one faith, the Bible, the New Testament especially, and they also shared one Holy Spirit, important Because that's where we have our fellowship is in the Spirit. And they all shared all of that no matter where they were. The churches of Asia greet you. Well, the Bible names four churches that Paul founded in Asia. He names, the Bible names four of them. Let me give you their names. Some of them should be familiar. Maybe all of them are. We studied Colossians before we studied 1 Corinthians. And three of them are named in that letter. And, of course, the other one was where Paul is now, in Ephesus, the letter to the Ephesians. So the four named churches in Asia that Paul founded were Ephesus, Colossae, Laodicea, and Heropolis. All right, now I mentioned I'd show you a map. So I want, this is kind of a busy map, but all I want you to see now is, um, here's Corinth, okay? This is modern-day Greece. In that day and age, it was separated into... Um, Achaia, the province, the Roman province in green there. And then this was the, a separate Roman province called Macedonia, where Philippi and, and Thessalonica are and were. So here they are here. And Paul is over here in Ephesus, port, near a port, the capital of Asia, where Paul had been ministering. He would minister for a total of three years. And in that time, the Bible tells us that all of Asia would have been evangelized. Not directly by Paul, because he didn't go everywhere here, but he sent out other missionaries, as it were, from his central location in Ephesus. Now, here are the other cities that are named in the New Testament as being founded by Paul. And they're kind of um, in a straight line, almost a a triangle, actually. You have Laodicea, Colossae, and Herodotus. I did that backwards. This is... Heropolis, Laodicea, and Colossae. In other words, these were three um, ministries that Paul had when he was in Colossae. Um, he, would, he wrote to the Colossians, and he also um, ha- asked them to give their greetings to those other two. In fact, let's take a look. Um, actually, we'll take a look in a minute. Um, please turn, though, first to Colossians. Let's see this. Colossians chapter 4, verse 13. Colossians chapter 4, Verse 13, it's the very end of the letter of Colossians. And Paul is going to tell the Colossians, who are a church in Asia, to also understand that Laodicea and Heropolis are also on his mind. Look at Colossians 4.13. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. Those are also churches in Asia. So again, they were greeting, I get the picture now, they were greeting. A lot of, most of these people, not all, but had never met people from Colossae. As a matter of fact, there were people in Ephesus that actually came from, I'm sorry, from Corinth. 
that came from them. So they had some connection here. We'll see that. But a lot of them never really met a Corinthian. And yet they were one in Christ. And they understood that they were all churches that Paul founded. And they were all sending their greetings here. Overwhelming, you know. When you think about it. When you think about if we had a point in time when there were dozens of churches around the country. All at the same time were giving us their greetings. That would be a real pickup, wouldn't it not? To hear from people maybe in California and Michigan and Arizona and wherever else, all sending their greetings to us. It makes us understand that we're part of a wider family. All right, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 16, 19. Go back to 1 Corinthians, our passage today. Verse 19, chapter 16. (laughs) The churches of Asia greet you. Then he goes on now. Now he's very specific. He goes from the wide view to a very specific couple. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Aquila and Prisca. Who were these people? They were clearly important, but who were they? Let's spend a little time. Let's take a short visit to Ephesus and spend some time with Aquila and Prisca. Who were they? Well, first of all, they were dear, dear friends and trusted co-workers with Paul. Let's see that. Let's see where they first met Paul. Go to Acts chapter 18, verse 1. Acts chapter 18, verse 1. Achilla and Prisca. They were a husband and wife. Achilla was the guy. Prisca was the wife. Now, these Greek, I mean, these Roman names sometimes, it's tough to know who's who, but that Achilla was the husband Prisca was the wife. It's interesting that they're mentioned six times in the New Testament. And in four of them, the wife is named first, ladies. And that just meant that she was quite a helper, quite a, a, a supporter of the ministry in her own right. In any event, look at Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, he left Athens. He had quite the time there. And then he went to Corinth. We can, we, if we looked at the map, you see they're close by. They're not far away. And he found a Jew named Achilla. Achilla was Jewish. A native of Pontus. Uh, I can only show you so many maps. But those of you who know the Black Sea, which is north of Turkey, that's where he came from. He came from the hinterlands of the Roman Empire. He was a native of Pontus. But he recently had come from Italy. So he went from there all the way to Italy. And then now he's where? He's in Corinth now with his wife Priscilla. That's the same lady. Sometimes Luke liked to call her Priscilla. Paul liked to call her Prisca. I have no idea. Maybe Paul was in more of a hurry, so he just liked to use the first two syllables. I don't don't know. But in any event, why had they gone from Italy now to Corinth? They got around. Why did that happen? We're told why. Because Claudius, the Roman emperor, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Can you imagine? You're living in the capital of the Roman Empire, and all of a sudden, one day, there's this edict that comes down that you have to leave with all the people that are in your community. That was quite a thing they had had to deal with. So they were commanded, because they were Jewish, to leave Rome, and then they went to Corinth, and then Paul came to them. Notice, Paul came to them. He found them, he sought them out, he came to them. And notice this, because he was the same trade, they were the same profession, as it were. He stayed with them. You see how close they became? How, how, how the fact that Paul needed them at that time? They became very good friends, intimate associates, supporters, and they were working for, by trade, they were tent makers, as was Paul. So again, they first met Paul when, they, when he came to Corinth. He, was, he came to Corinth, they were already there. They were tent makers, as Paul was. And they invited Paul to join them in their trade. And they did quite a bit of traveling over the years. All right. Now, let's take a look at this. You can't see it, but this is actually the Black Sea. If we went over here somewhere, okay, that was where he, was, he came from, Pontus. Okay. Because, yeah, it's a long journey all the way over here to Rome. Uh, you would have to have come through mountain areas, mountain passes, come on down to one of these ports. Uh, no. Yeah, one of these ports here, all right, and then take a trip somehow, maybe to Corinth, and then all the way over to Rome. It's a long trip. So they went from Pontus to Rome. We saw that in, this was in AD 49, the Emperor Claudius now. They're living in Rome, and he says, you have to leave because you're Jewish. And then they, of course, traveled again by, by sea down to Corinth. So they were already moving quite a bit. 
Now then after that, they were, they, they were found in Ephesus. Now Paul is writing uh, 1 Corinthians here from Ephesus. So somehow they, had a, they went, didn't have to, but they went, and I'm going to tell you, they took the land route for part of it, we'll see that, and then they landed in Ephesus. So they went from Pontus, imagine, to, to Rome, to Corinth, to Ephesus. And this is where they are when Paul writes 1 Corinthians. They're with him there. Now, at the end um, of Paul's journey, um, writing 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, the, the, how they got here to Ephesus because the first time that Paul was here, when he had his ministry of 18 months with Corinth, he then headed to Ephesus. All right, So they went with him. And it turns out that he was going to continue on. This is actually, he, took, he continued on to all the way over to Syria. I don't have that on the map either, but you know where Syria is today. It was sort of in the same place back then. Then, hang with me here. All right, there in Ephesus. Then we find him again over here in Rome. I mean, they got around. By the way, you had to have some uh, wealth in order to be traveling all this. So that tells us something about the success of their tent-making business. So they're over here. When Paul writes Romans, he, they're over here. All right? And then we're going to find out when we read 2 Timothy that he ended up over here again in Ephesus. They got around. I'm not going to sing a Beach Boys song, but they did. They, they, they got around, all right? So in any event, I um, just want you to see that, who they were. And the thing to keep in mind that is with the exception of this first trip from Rome to Corinth, the reason they kept moving was to, in order to support the ministry, in order to be a part of what was happening here and building up this church. Um, same thing here as we're going to see. Same thing here, all right? I want to point out, that this is the province of Asia. Ephesus is the, was the capital at the time. This is the province of Achaia. Corinth was the capital at the time. This is the province of Italia, Italy. Rome was the capital at the time. And I'm saying that because Paul was really strategic. You know, sometimes I think we think about being guided by the Spirit as just kind of like being overcome and having this great vision. And sometimes that did happen. But if you notice here, it, maybe it was God, but somebody was really strategic because he founded the church at Ephesus, and from there it spread through all of Asia. He founded the church of Corinth, which was the capital here, and he also didn't found Rome, but uh, there was a, there was a um, con- big congregation here that he eventually wrote to, and that uh, um, Prisca and Aquila, Aquila and Prisca ended up there. All right. A little geography lesson this morning. All right, so... We also find that um, they opened their church for they opened their home for church meetings. Now imagine that, all right? We've had we had a couple who did the same thing for many years. They said, "Hey, you know what? We've got the space. Why don't we all meet in our house?" And they did that. They did that in more than one place where they lived. They did it in Ephesus, all right, which we just saw in in, in uh, verse nineteen of First Corinthians sixteen. All right, they, they opened up their church. Their, I keep saying they opened up their home to the church in Ephesus. They did the same thing in Rome. When they lived in Rome, they opened up their, church, their home to the church in Rome. Please go to Romans 16, verse 3. Romans 16, verse 3. We'll see this again. We'll see what kind of people they were. Romans 16, verse 3. Very generous hospital people, hospital people. But not only that, we're going to see something else here. Look at Romans 16, verse, starting in verse 3, end of the book of Romans. More greetings now. Okay? Paul is writing from, from, uh, from Corinth here, and he's telling the Romans to please greet a couple of people. Who were they? Greet Prisca and Achilla. Notice what he calls them here, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. In other words, he had already had quite a track record with them by the time he writes Romans. Okay, he writes Romans after he writes First and Second Corinthians. Great Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, notice this though, who for my life risk their own necks. How many people would do that for you? And they would take a bullet for you. That in order to help out Paul and rescue him for whatever was going on, they were willing to die. That tells you the kind of people they are. Courageous, people of character, people of great love, to whom not only do I give thanks, notice this, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. So at that point in time, all the churches of the Gentiles, that meant in Asia, that meant in Achaia, even in Macedonia, because we're going to see 
of that church today. Um, all of those churches were all grateful. That tells you some idea of the impact. This one couple, they were all grateful. To, not, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also, here it is, greet the church that is in their house. So they had, again, again, the point is that they had the church in their house in Ephesus and also in Romans. They dedicated their lives, their resources, to the Lord's work in three major churches. They were each capital cities of different Roman provinces, as we've seen, Italy, Achaia, in Asia. In other words, they had a huge impact on the early church. One couple. We think of Paul as one apostle having a huge impact, and of course he did, but he didn't do it alone, right? He had other people working with him to accomplish what he ended up accomplishing. And two of the most important were a husband and wife team of Aquila and Prisca. All right, go back now to verse 16. I'm sorry, verse 19. Oh, you're probably already there, but looking... No, you're not. You're in Romans. Please go back to 1 Corinthians 16 in verse 19. Back to Achilla and Prisca. When they're in Ephesus with Paul, Achilla and Prisca greet you. Notice the next word. Heartily in the Lord. Heartily in the Lord. With the church that is in their house in Ephesus. Why was it heartily? What does it mean? It means they greeted the, the Corinthian church with warmth and affection. In other words, this doesn't just, you know, greeting them because they're fellow members of the body. This was something more than that. They were greeted warmly with affection. Now, why would that be? It's really simple. They had been in Corinth for six or 18 months. They had a year there, half of their life when that church was being built, established and growing. They were there. They were part of it. They got to know a lot of the saints in Corinth. And when you're in that situation with saints and you're working together for one purpose, united in spirit, loving one another, you have great depth of affection, warmth for those people. And that's that one word, heartily, brings that out. Look at verse 20 now. We're going on. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Who are all the brethren? We don't know. We're not told. We can surmise, though, that since he's already talked about all the churches in Asia, and he's talked about Prisca and Aquila, and then he says the brethren, all right, it's a pretty safe bet that who he was talking about were the people like Aquila and Prisca who worked directly with Paul in founding and ministering to the different churches in Asia and Greece. That's in all likelihood who the brethren were. Those were the people that Paul kept in contact in a special way. So then, now he's now, what has he done? He's given greetings from other people, churches in Asia, Prisca and Aquila, the brethren. Notice what he says next. He tells them, greet one another. You see it? People across the sea greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you. The men that, and, and in a couple cases, ladies that are working in the churches and building them up and teaching them, they greet you. And then he turns to them. He says, now it's time for you to greet one another. He says, I want you to greet one another, and I want you to do it with what? A holy kiss. People get a little squirmy. I don't know why. It's so funny. We're in a culture that's, you know, got all kinds of things going on in, in the area of sex and so forth. And yet when the Bible, somebody talks about a kiss, everyone's like, oh, right? Well, it's, that's not, <laughs> it's not maybe what you have in mind, all right? We'll see that. So now they're greeting one another, and they're doing it with a holy kiss. Well, it turns out that... Paul talks about the holy kiss in more than one letter. Talks about it in Romans. Peter called it a kiss of love. Notice, and please turn to 1 Peter 5.14 to see it yourself. 1 Peter 5.14. Greet one another with a holy kiss. We can't do that right now because of COVID-19, I suppose. We can do greet one another with a holy fist pump. That's what I'd be my doctor doing that. Or with a, with a holy elbow, right? With a holy wave. Whatever. It does. See, that, by the way, that's the thing. It isn't necessarily the, the thing that he picked was something that was known as a means of greeting and affection in that day and age. And he adopted that into the church. It was something that, remember the Lord Jesus Christ one time when he was visiting at the home of a Pharisee, and there was a prostitute that came there and, and uh, wiped, her, wiped her feet with her hair and all of that. 
And then they're all offended. You know, you know what kind of woman this is, right? Well, then he says, hey, time out. I came in here, and you didn't wash my feet, and you didn't greet me with a kiss. You see, it was a, it was a custom that they would, somebody who came and was welcomed, there would be a kiss that would, that's why it was so horrible that what happened when Jesus was in the, in the garden and, and then um, uh, Judas came with the, with the soldiers and so forth. What did he do to mark out Jesus? What did he do? He kissed him. See, that was a total violation, the opposite of what was supposed to be in the heart. It's in the heart that things really matter. All right, And there, then, then we express them in certain ways. All right. Paul asked the saints in Corinth to greet one another. Peter called it a kiss of love in 1 Peter 5.14. And there it is. Greet one another with a kiss of love. And now, it's interesting, too, to kind of get that anything romantic out of your head. This was only practiced with the same sex. All right. Men greeted one another. Women greeted one another. All right. Don't get the wrong idea either. Okay. Because this was an expression of welcome and affection. It was an expression of respect. A friendship of love and peace among the saints. Today we have our own ways of expressing that. Maybe it's a warm handshake. Maybe it's putting an arm around somebody. Maybe it's hugging somebody. Whatever it might be, we have our ways today of expressing the same thing, of of respect. Military, this is respect, right? Different ways of expressing it. Friendship. Hey, we're, we're, we're members of one of another. Love. And peace, reconciliation among the saints. That last one, by the way, is really significant. When we're talking about the Corinthians right now, why? What was going on? How were things going in Corinth? Well, we read the whole letter and we know. There was a community that was badly divided. If you can think, there's some people that when somebody came into the assembly, they just kind of moved out, turned the other way, talked. You know how that is. Clicks do that. Right? They like, they, hey, shh, I don't want to talk to them. Pretend you're talking to me. You know, that kind of thing. They were very divided at that time. Very divided. Rich and poor. Those who said that they were of Apollos versus those who were of Paul. There were many ways. Those who were suing one another. That would be a form of division. If there was somebody in the congregation right now who was suing you, I imagine it would be really hard to express affection to them. Right? They had a lot of those things going on. You know, it's like two sons, they're fighting each other, then dad comes on the scene, and after he breaks up the fight, he says, listen, make up with one another right now. Give them a hug. You know, that's, that's what was really the, what was going on, the mood in Corinth at the time. In other words, at this time, and with these people, such an expression of love and reconciliation would have been very significant. It would have meant a lot more in Corinth than in other places. For them to actually do what Paul's asking them to do. Why? Because it would indicate that in their heart they were willing to start the healing. Start the healing. There was a great rift, a great conflict, great rivalries going on. And yet when they were, if they were obedient and they expressed that and meant it, that would mean, okay, in my heart I'm now willing to forgive. I'm willing to see if we can patch things up. Go forward together. Be more like that beloved community that the Lord wants us to be. Reminds me, I'm old enough to remember this event. I don't know if you are. Some of you maybe. Some of you probably don't. But this happened in in 1979. I can't believe it. It was over 40 years ago. At that time, um, none of the Arab nations recognized Israel. In fact, they had fought several wars. I think three by this time. Um, to try to destroy Israel. And chief among those nations, the most powerful, was Egypt. And so there was tremendous hostility between Egypt and Israel. And then we had a president, Jimmy Carter, who succeeded where almost nobody had ever succeeded in trying to mend the rift between these two countries. This is actually at the end of what was, came, came to be known as the Camp David Accords. It was a peace treaty between Egypt and Israel. And believe me, when they were in Camp David, these two fought like cats the whole time. They had their agendas. They were very different from one another. Um, and yet, you know, Israel wanted land, and uh, Egypt had it, for example. So this was not, it's not an easy thing. As a matter of fact, the night before the breakthrough, uh, Jimmy Carter had prepared these pictures, um, and, and he was asking, he had given a bunch of them to Begin and said, I want you to give these to your grandchildren. 
And then the tears started flowing because Begin realized that if we don't do this now, what kind of a life are my grandchildren going to have? And so it was that that really turned his heart. In any event, then they have the press conference, and at the end of it, more or less spontaneously, these two men hugged each other. That's what we're talking about in Corinth, that something like that could happen. You kind of think about the rival factions, and then there's the Apostle Paul, and they're actually waking up, and he's like, yeah, you know. Anyway, I have too much time when I'm studying to think about stuff, so you're going to have to, you know, give me some, give me some space on that. Verse 21. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 21. We're going to see something else that would now express intimacy, the personal touch. Look at 1 Corinthians 16, 21. The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. I might say, well, you know, this is a letter. It's Paul's letter. What's so significant that the greeting is in his hand, in his handwriting? Wasn't the whole thing in his handwriting? And the answer is no. What he always did when he, when he had a letter is he would dictate it to a stenographer. They didn't call it, they had another fancy name for it. I can never remember it. But that's what he did. Yeah, the smart people are going to tell me what it is now. But um, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But uh, it's actually great to know these details. I don't happen. I know it, but I, I, wrote it, I didn't write it down. Because what really matters is that Paul would dictate that. It tells you something, by the way, that he would uh, entrust somebody to be able to faithfully take down everything he said. It's interesting. Those were important people. But in any event, at the end, he takes the pen from the scribe, right, the stenographer, and then he writes something in his own handwriting. He did this often. He did this often. Paul often did that. He would, when it was all said and done, you know, and basically the letter was finished, he would then take the pen and then write something after it. Kind of like we would call it maybe a PS or a postscript today. But it was in his own handwriting. It was a personal touch. It was something that also authenticated the letter. This is definitely from Paul. Look, it's his signature. Look, it's his handwriting at the end. By the way, this was a time-honored practice in our society as well, up till quite recently. I say quite recently for a couple of reasons. You see... Back in the old days, when I was growing up, they used to have secretaries. They used to type letters. You know, the, the boss would dictate it. It's the same thing that was going on with Paul. He would dictate it. They would write it down. They would type it. Right? They would leave space at the end for a signature. Sometimes if you got a letter and all it had was the signature, you wondered if it was just a stamp. Right? Did, did, did the person who's writing this letter to me even touch it? But then you would get a letter from somebody... And not only the signature, but then there was that P.S. in their handwriting. And you know, because it's a personal thing, just between you and them, you understood that they were actually thinking about you and caring about you in writing this letter. Now, this, this one happens to be a letter from President Jerry Ford in 1975 to a fellow by the name of Arthur Ashe, who was one of the greatest tennis players ever. And he's basically thanking... Um, Arthur Ashe for sending him a copy of his book. And he said, I'm reading it. I want to read it more. I'm grateful for your autograph. <laughs> so apparently he had signed the book. And then he says, I enjoyed meeting you and our visit with you, along with Billie Jean King. If you know who she is, she was one of the greatest females. And then he goes on. He says, you're encouraging me to continue my own tennis playing. So it's very personal. Congratulating him for winning his victory at Wimbledon. And then he signs it. And then at the end he says, P.S., there was more. There was something in his heart beyond what he had dictated. He says, you are a fine example for our youth, and we are proud of you. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about. That was what Paul was doing in his own hand. And what it tells us is that verses 22 to 24 were in Paul's handwriting. Now, this is very significant. Why? It's at the end. It's been a stormy ride and all the things he had to deal with. A lot of problems trying to get people to stop being so selfish. He rebuked them. He chastised them. And he also taught them. But it it was a very difficult letter to write. But at the end of it, he is now going to write things in his own hand. They were uppermost things on his heart that he wanted to get across. 
beyond what he had dictated, and he took the last three verses to do it. He writes four sentences. Each of them are separate thoughts. Notice the first one. Look at verse 22 of 1 Corinthians chapter 16. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha. Now, you might say, wait a minute. I just saw Jerry Ford and his stuff was all sweetness and light. The first thing that Paul writes is this. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Oh, come on, Paul. That's a heck of a way to sign off. Why do I want that in a PS? Well, here's the thing. Again, I mentioned this at the beginning. Notice the he. Very important word. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. It's in the singular. He's talking about an individual. If anyone does not love the Lord, he, not you, but he is to be accursed. Now what happens is, is we've just seen him greeting the saint. Every time he says you, churches of Asia greet you, right? You greet one another. He's always saying you. Now all of a sudden he says he. Why? Because the you is the beloved community that he is not a member of the beloved community. He breaks the string. He is not addressing the believers saying, you guys, he's warning them. This is why it's an act of love. He's warning them about an individual among them who has rejected their Lord. There were always those people. You read the letters of Paul. There are always people among them who were coming in to try to upset things. You know, we, can't, we, we don't know who this individual was. Could have been more than one. But we do know that there were a lot of enemies in Corinth that were stirring up trouble. It could very well have been uh, somebody, who, uh, an emissary from them that was saying, go in there. Just you know, be a, tell us what's going on. Try to, you know, try to cause dissension. You know, try to subtly say that maybe, you know, Jesus Christ isn't God. Or try to get them all messed up about things. There's no resurrection. Right? I mean, we've seen this in the letter. Not surprising that there would be somebody like that. So he's warning the beloved community. He had good reason to be concerned. There was all kinds of fleshly behavior going on. Many had succumbed to false teachings like the one I just mentioned. So who was he warning them about? Again, this he was not a member of the beloved community. It's like John said. You know, there was, they were with us, but they were not of us. Right? The false teachers. This was an unbeliever. If anyone does not love the Lord, unbeliever, he is to be accursed. Not in Christ. How do we know? Well, let me tell you, that's a whole study. Um, I did it, so I know. And, and believe me, if I were going to teach just on that, that, there's enough material there for about five lessons. Okay, so I'm just going to give you the highlights. Well, first of all, notice that Paul pronounces a curse on such an individual. The Greek word is anathema. We use that in the English now. We've, we've taken that word over from the Greek, and we still use it today in English, anathema. What did it mean? It meant given over to divine condemnation. Could Paul have been saying that about a believer in Jesus Christ? Why? What's one verse that just knocks that away? This, he's given over to divine condemnation. Is there any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Romans 8.1 says no. Couldn't have been writing to a believer. By the way, he only did this in one other place in his letters. Please turn to Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. It's very significant who he's talking about here. Look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. Only other time we see Paul using the same word, anathema, in terms of cursing an individual. Okay, It's a very severe thing. Think of it. To have to speak and to say, this one I'm pronouncing a curse on. I'm pronouncing that they are bound for the condemnation of God. Look at Galatians 1, verse 8. Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. Paul writing to the Galatians, something happened, speaking of people that have entered in and crept in and tried to get them to believe things that were false. That was going on in Galatia too. But even if we... Those were, the, those were the apostles. Or an angel from heaven should preach to you what? A gospel contrary to what we've preached to you. He is to be accursed. Anybody who preaches a false gospel, Paul says, they're to be accursed. Ooh, 
boy, I'll tell you what, I wish that, you know, I don't wish it, but people who are out there and knowingly preaching a false gospel, they better spend some time in Galatians chapter 1 and understand the severity of what they're into. If anyone preaches a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. He is to be given over to divine condemnation. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man, notice it's an individual again, is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed, he repeats it. Here in Galatians, who's to be accursed? Well, it's very simple. It's anyone who preaches a false gospel. Now, who's going to preach a false gospel? It's somebody who doesn't, doesn't want to believe the real gospel. It's an unbeliever and it's a false teacher on top of it. By the way, if you want to get a graphic description of who these men were, sometime read the book of Jude and you'll see. And the point I'm trying to make is that these were, this was a severe thing because of a, of a severe set of actions and because of the nature of the people he was talking about. He only did it twice. Okay, They were false brethren, for sure. They were brought in. Right? They were sent in. They were brought in for one purpose, to put the saints in bondage. It was like Paul when he said, you know what? In chapter 3, he said, if anyone tries to destroy the temple of the Spirit, they will be destroyed. That's that idea. Don't touch my body. That's what Jesus Christ is saying. Don't touch the beloved community. He said to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? He took it personally when somebody tried to attack the church. They crept in unnoticed. They didn't love the Lord. They loved pleasure. They loved themselves. Now, here's the point. I want you to notice what's underlined. Anyone who has no love for the Lord is an unbeliever. See, this messes a lot of people up because they read that and they try to say, well, do I really love the Lord? And a lot of times what they're talking about is a feeling. You know, do I feel like I'm loving the Lord? It has nothing to do with a feeling. There's not some intensity you have to reach in order to say you love the Lord. Right? It's just the fact that you understand what he did. You understand his love for you and you love him back. Okay. If anyone doesn't have that at all, no love for the Lord, he's an unbeliever. But there's no condemnation for those who are believers. Paul would never pronounce a curse on a believer. He wouldn't do it. These are not believers. All believers, all of us who are believers, have the spirit indwelling our hearts. And we know from Romans chapter 5 that the Spirit poured the love of God into our hearts. We can't help but love the Lord because the Holy Spirit has actually poured that love into our hearts. And in Romans 8, it says that some people love God. It's everyone who's been called, believers, everyone who's been justified. All believers are, love God. We all do who are believers in Christ. All believers love the Lord. All those who have been justified, declared righteous forever by God, Love God. It's just a fact. Please, please look now at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, as we wrap up. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Writing to believers, again, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Has no love for the Lord. What about believers? Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. And though you, believers, have not seen him, isn't that true? Blessed is he who has not seen but has believed. None of us have seen Christ. If you have, please let me know. All right, I'll call the rescue squad. We'll get you some help. In other words, physically seen him. All right? No. You haven't seen him, but you love him. Who? Who is he stating dogmatically loves the Lord? Believers. Notice what he says. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him. Those who believe in him, love him. I want you to see that. Okay. All believers love the Lord. Back to verse 22. And we'll wrap this up. 1 Corinthians 16, 22 to 24. 1 Corinthians 16, 22 to 24. The second statement he makes is one word. It's a word that's not in the Greek. It's a word that's in Aramaic. Aramaic was the language that Jesus spoke when he was here the first time. And Paul retains the Aramaic for this one expression. Notice, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed, the unbeliever, the false teacher, 
Maranatha. That's a separate statement, Maranatha. It's one Aramaic word. What does it mean in the Aramaic? Oh Lord, come! It's an expression of great desire. It's, it, he's entreating the Lord, please come right now. He's, this is a prayer. He's calling out to the Lord by name. Lord, please addressing him. Okay? It's the language that our Lord spoke. Think about it. He's in prayer with the Lord and he's using, why, why Aramaic? Why does Paul put the Aramaic in? Because he wants you to understand that he's speaking directly to the Lord on this. When, when, the, when the word Abba is used, that intimate relationship with the Father, they, the word of God preserves the Aramaic. When Christ was on the cross crying out to the Father, he, they preserved the Aramaic in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark. Directly speaking, a prayer, an intense prayer. He's entreating the Lord to come. Please return as soon as you can. Why? Why would Paul do that right now? Well, let's go, let's just think about the letter in chapter 15. He knows that when the Lord comes, it, it, the saying will come about what? Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, Lord, come, because oh, death will then have not the victory. Instead, death will be swallowed up in glory. We will have our resurrection bodies. We will be in the glory in the same kind of body that the Jesus Christ has in his resurrection. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Paul began this letter with grace. He ends it with grace. He ends all of his letters with grace. That was his way. Every one of his letters ended with a note of grace, a grace note. We're saved by grace, are we not? Whatever we have, we have by grace. We are who we are by the grace of God. When we do the Lord's work, as we're commanded to do in chapter 16, it's the grace of God working in us. That's the thing he wanted people to... It's not just a word. It's, it has a meaning that, that says that everything that you have, you've received. Your salvation. The fact that you're in Christ. Who you are. Child of God. When we do the work of the Lord and we're commanded to, it's the grace of God working in us. Never forget that. Well, in a lot of the letters, that is the end. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Remember, he's writing in his own handwriting. It's not the end here. He adds something at the end in this letter he doesn't do anywhere else. What is it? Verse 24. My love be with those of you that are on my side. My love be with those of you that I didn't have to chastise. That what he writes there? Check it out. No. My love be with you all. In Christ Jesus, amen. He expresses his love. This is Paul now. He expresses his own love for each one of them. Especially, perhaps, the ones who had opposed him. The ones he had a rebuke. The ones whose behavior was the worst. Why? Because he had a fatherly love for all of them. And he wanted them to understand that at the end. He didn't want them to misinterpret his rebukes, his chastisement, as a lack of love. That somehow he was writing them off. He wasn't at all. He had a tender fatherly love for each one of them. After all, they're all saints. They're all sons by adoption of God the Father. Who was he to stop loving any of them? He wanted them to know that. He had a fatherly love for them all. And it was because he loved them that he rebuked them. Because he loved them that he chastised them. He wanted what was best for them. He wanted them to grow up. He wanted them to learn how to love one another. But he never stopped loving them. And so ends our letter. Our letter. Why? Because it's ours now. When you spend over a year in a letter, it becomes part of you. It's our letter now. What does that mean? It means that at the end here, the Lord now is leaving this in our hands. He's taken everything that he's instructed the Corinthians about. He's taken the great chapters on love and the resurrection. He's taken what he's saying here about grace. And he's handing it to us. He's saying, now I want you to love. And I want you to love the way I describe love in chapter 13. I want you to be patient with each other. I want to be kind. He wants us not to be jealous of each other. He doesn't want people going around in the beloved assembly bragging. He says, don't be arrogant. 
Don't act unbecomingly. Don't seek your own. That's not love. That's what the world does. Don't be easily provoked. Somebody's, you know, triggered. Please don't be triggered. That's basically what that would translate into today. Don't take into account a wrong suffer. Don't be carrying around all the things that people did you wrong by. And, you know, don't do that. And by all means, do not rejoice in unrighteousness. That's what they were doing. Right? They were, they were, they were, they're flesh. Now, the flesh rejoices in unrighteousness. If you don't think so, try to spend five minutes on Facebook and read some of the things that people are saying about other people. Unrighteous things. Right? There's the flesh that wants to really, oh man, this is great. I'm glad they say it. I might even put a comment that supports this thing of condemning the other side. No, don't do that. Rejoice with the truth. What's the truth? It's in the Word of God. Rejoice in that. Whatever things are right and lovely and just, think on those things. Bear with one another. Believe all the good. Believe all the promises of God. Hope all the things that has been laid out in front of you. Endure, no matter what, in the beloved community. You do that, and the love you have will never fail. Well, I hope you took good notes for the last year and a half, because there will be a test. Not really. Next Sunday, we begin a whole new series. It'll be a series on the two letters that Paul writes to Timothy. We're going to take a look at that. Now, originally, I was just going to do 2 Timothy. Reason being, a lot of people have questions about what the Bible says about the end times, the last days of the church. Get some great answers to that. It's not maybe what you think it is, okay? It's not the four blood moons, and it's not the Antichrist or any of that, all right? Throw that away. That's not for us. We're going to be gone before any of that starts showing up. But what is for us is what Paul writes in 2 Timothy. But we're going to go to 1 Timothy first because there's important things there as well. All right, let's close in prayer and we'll get ready for the Lord's Supper together. Heavenly Father, we just want to take a moment here and thank you, Father, that you have provided this great letter in your word and that you've given us the time and the energy to walk through this from start to finish. And and to listen and take to heart all the things that are in it. The things that build us up and the things that challenge us and rebuke us. We know all of that is for our good because you're our Father and you love us. And Father, speaking of love, let us now enter into the Lord's Supper together, the love feast. And today we're going to reflect for a moment on the love that sent Jesus to the cross. Asking all this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. All right, this time I would invite the ushers to come forward and to pass out the communion elements. Therefore, brethren, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Well, in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, we are instructed to let all we do be done in love. Christ showed us the kind of love that we're to have. Why? Because he loved us. What he did for love was to give himself up for us. He died for us on the cross. He went through all of that suffering. He allowed the Father to place upon him and bear the sins of the world. That was the love that he had for us. He he sacrificed everything for us. He came from heaven, took on the form, the body of a human being. That body was abused and scorned, and he was basically destroyed in his body at the cross. All for us, all because he loved us. He didn't consider the shame. He was looking forward to the joy. He tells us in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, he says... This is my commandment to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. When we think about what does it mean to do all things in love, what does it mean to really participate in a beloved community? It means to have the same love that Jesus had for us. It means that we're willing to sacrifice 
yes to hurt in order for the benefit of other people. That's what love is. That's what we're called to do. If you want to understand love, look no farther than the cross of Jesus Christ. If you want to understand how you act in a manner of love, think about how that applies to your life. Okay, now, he's already died for us. It's not that. Okay, it's just that he's showing love by that. He's saying, listen, there are ways in which you can live in love. You can lay down your life. He says, I died for you. You live for me. You know, he says that, that his love for us on the cross was an, act, was an act of dying. He says, I want you to be living sacrifices. And it's up to each one of us to go to the Lord and go to his word and understand how that can be put into practice in our lives. What does that mean? What area of my life are you calling me, Lord, to be sacrificial, to do without, to put in your hands and say, do with that what you will. Do with me what you will. Your will, Father, not mine, be done. We love because Christ first loved us. And he loved us to the utmost. He gave himself up for us. And he died so that we who live should no longer live for ourselves, selfish, but for him. He wants us to do his work in love. Again, it's that love that is patient, that is kind, that is never jealous, that hopes for the best and doesn't take into account the wrong suffered. Think of Jesus. Think of the fact that Peter denied him three times. And yet, when he was risen from the dead, he went to Peter and he didn't say a thing about the fact that he had betrayed him three times. Not betrayed him, but denied him three times. He just went to them and says, now, now that you understand what love is and forgiveness, please go and feed my sheep. Go teach them about the love that I have for you. Love never fails. And that's why when we gather together every month, we do bring into remembrance the death of the Lord and all that that means, all that we can contain in our hearts that time. And I hope that as we gather every month and we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we look at another aspect of the cross, that you have those things, you preserve them in your heart so that it becomes more and more meaningful as we gather together. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you, love. Do this in remembrance of me. Every time we remember him. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul adds, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. It is something be proclaimed. Why? Because it demonstrates the great love of God, that it demonstrates that that God is forgiving our sins, has forgiven them. It demonstrates that whoever believes in Christ will never perish, but have eternal life. We ought to proclaim it. And we're to proclaim it until something happens. It was the thing that, that in today's message Paul prayed fervently for. Until the Lord All right, let's close in prayer again. Father, we thank you so much for establishing this supper that we gather together and and bring into remembrance the death of your son. Again, Father, we would ask the Holy Spirit to translate that into our lives. And the way we do it is to be living sacrifices and to live according to the principles of your love as expressed in 1 Corinthians 13. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, we've been conducting our Thursday evening Bible studies on Skype. It's been going pretty well, although one thing that, you know, I keep encouraging people to do is to still ask questions, still be a part of it. I know it's hard, 
But if we would, you know, try, let's try to do that. In any event, every Thursday at 6.30, we gather together. If you want to get a link, just email mark, M-A-R-C, at lbible.org. All right. Um, we, as far as uh, donations are concerned, a lot of people, you know, wonder about that, especially at the end of service. They may be wondering, well, when's the basket going to come, and do I have a whatever bill? Well, you don't have to worry about it, because we don't take collections. We don't tithe, okay, because that's, that's something that was in the Old Testament. Not, that's not how we are to give. We are to give, what, freely, with a joyful heart, as the Lord has prospered us. And totally different principles of giving now, okay? And it, it, when you do um, desire to support what we're doing here or the missionaries that we support, um, there are different ways that you can do it. In modern times, we, of course, have uh, our website, www.lbible.org and there's a button there you can you can do that or you can send it the old-fashioned way by mail um, or you can you can place it here the box in the back all right again all of this Jesus did all of this because he shared the heart of his father he was not willing that any should perish and we we have the calling to be a part of that turning people towards not perishing. How is that? It's very simple. We preach the gospel. The gospel that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that he was buried to show that he really died and then he was raised from the dead on the third day by his father. It's all about Jesus, the gospel. It's all about what he's done and what it means and the fact that whoever believes in him, the one who died for them, the one who was buried and who was raised from the dead so that they would understand that there's this eternal life, okay? And that all somebody's got to do is hear that tremendous good news and believe it. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Whoever believes in Jesus will never perish but have eternal life. That goes for anybody today who's never really heard the gospel or listened to it or was not ready to allow his heart by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, to, to believe it, okay? Today is the day. That's what the Lord says in first, 2 Corinthians 6. Those of us who are believers, it's then our calling. It's our privilege as ambassadors to go out there and when we have opportunity to let other people know about the good news and about the fact that there is a God, there is something called eternal life. There's also something called the lake of fire, and that God has given you the message that rescues people. And again, it's the good news. Jesus died for our sins. We don't have to be under the death that comes as the wages. He was raised from the dead. And he lives forever, and so will you, when you believe that good news. If you have any questions about today, the message, the gospel, any other aspect of what, what we are about here, you can always email me, and that's pastor. P-A-S-T-O-R at lbible.org. Okay, rather than Mark, it's P-A-S-T-O-R. Same at lbible.org. Father, as we leave today, we just again want to just praise you and thank you. We want to thank you for Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross for us. We thank you, Father, that you've entrusted to us the message of the power of the cross. Help us to seek out and be, be attentive to the opportunities that you're going to place in our path to speak boldly about the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask this in the name of Christ, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. And you are dismissed. And again, we're gathering together by Skype on Thursday at 6.30.